just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to look at your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit guide and lead us as we look into this section that we're looking into and see what you'd have us to see from all of this. In your son's precious name, amen. Ezekiel chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, where there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, and as the appearance in the, of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, even in, under the cherubim, and fill your hand with coals of fire from beneath the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim and stood over the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the courts were filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory and the sound of the cherubim's wings were heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he spoke. And it came to pass that as he had commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from the, between the wheels, from between the cherubim. Then he went in and stood beside the wheels, and one of the cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubims, and took thereof and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. We're going to stop there because this is a lot of... If you, if you remember way back when we were doing Ezekiel 1... Uh, Ezekiel, and we're still in the same story from Ezekiel 1, uh, Ezekiel saw uh, the river Cherub, Cherub, the image of the, the living creatures, as he called them, and there were four of them, and they had wheels underneath them, and whirlwinds, and, and it's a very interesting description that we, went, we covered way back then, and they had four faces on each of the cherubim, and they looked in all directions, and they had eyes and on all parts of them and their wings, four wings and their arms. We're coming back to that picture. <laughs> Angels as far as we can tell. In the Hebrew, the wheels literally mean whirlwinds or wheels upon wheels. We, if, if, when you look at it, it's very hard to picture. The biggest thing that we came back to when we were in chapter one was the idea that it's a picture of God being everywhere present because they went forward, backwards, and, and their eyes looked in all directions. So there's a lot of symbology there that we think that most people believe is this representing of the spirit, the spiritual world being all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present. It's Whirlwind is literally what it means in Hebrew. Uh, well, whirlwind, wheel assembly of a chariot. So it's a very interesting, but it, when you think of a chariot moving, it kicks up dust and, and wind and everything. Some really bizarre people have pictured it as a, as a rocket firing down and blowing the dirt around. But uh, it's very hard to understand because he's doing the best to describe what he saw and it was beyond what he could understand. And beyond what we probably could understand, even if we were looking at it. So, but he's coming back to this same picture. He's coming back to these cherubim coming out, and and we've had this little break where he's been taken out of taken out in a vision and shown all these different things that we've talked about for the last last several weeks. 
So now we're coming back to the picture that was from chapter one. For those who remember way back in chapter one when we studied it probably two months ago. So here he is, he's saying he looked, and remember last week he was talking about the man that was clothed in linen, and we believe that that was Jesus. And quite possibly is talking about the millennial kingdom, because he's talking about the new temple that's going to be reestablished, which is going to be in the middle, of, you know, any time now between now and the, and the end of the tribulation that the new temple will go up. And because when he, Ezekiel, again, we've talked about Ezekiel's prophesying at a time when the second temple, excuse me, the first temple had already been destroyed and obviously wasn't referring to the Roman, the, the temple of the Roman times. So here we are, he says, he's looked and he says, he saw above the cherubim something that appeared like a sapphire stone which sapphire has that bluish color on it. And so he's seeing some, some appearance of God upon the throne above the cherubim. And so this is kind of an interesting picture. He pictures it as a sapphire, that, that sky blue color of a sapphire. And he sees a throne. And what he sees on the throne, again, we don't know because we know that God told Moses, you can't see me and a man can't see me and live. So what exactly he saw sitting on the throne, he doesn't even begin to try to describe. He just says, I saw a throne. And uh, he says that person spoke and told the man in Linden to grab fire from amongst the, between the cherubim. And this fire is going to spread out over the city. And remember, the city has, has had devastation. He's, he's purified and the city because remember we talked last week how they, they went in and they killed all the ones that weren't uh, righteous and that weren't confessing God's name now he's taking the fire from God which is probably the Holy Spirit and sprinkling it upon the righteous righteous uh, of the city that is left because everybody has been killed and remember we had the six six uh, says men but probably angels that went through and slew all the unrighteous and I'm trying to remember, if you remember last week, I'm trying to bring us up to where we're at. And he's saying, spread this fire over that, over the city. And the city's, the fire is coming out from God. And it says, the, the cherubim stood to the right side of the house. And remember last week we talked about the house is the temple. They're on the right side of the temple. And we've talked before that right in the scriptures is the site of approval. So they're on the side of approval for the, for the, of the temple. And we still, and I bring this up every time I talk about it, we still have this idea of the right hand being the approval. When you talk about somebody being your right hand man in your business uh, or your right hand man you know, in your friendship or your life, you know, this is the person, I trust them with anything. <laughs> they're the one that if I need something done, if I'm gone, you can go talk to that person and they can speak with the authority. They're, they're, they're approved. And so they're standing at the right side of the temple and it says that the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. And this is going back to the picture of the exodus when the, when the uh, pillar of cloud led by day and the pillar of fire led by night. When they built the temple, 
the glory of God came upon the temp, uh, excuse me, the tabernacle. When they built the tabernacle, the glory of God came upon the tabernacle as a thick cloud. And we see it also when Solomon built the temple and they dedicated it, and God's glory filled the temple as a dark, a thick cloud. Tent. The tabernacle was a tent that they moved around. So Adam and Eve didn't see God. Mm -hmm. I wonder at what point did that change? When they sinned? Yeah. And they probably didn't see the Father. They probably saw the incarnate Jesus before before his birth. Uh, there's all kinds of pictures where we know people saw Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, when Joshua wrestled with the angel, that particular angel we believe was, was Jesus. Uh, when the angel came and told Jesus about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and he actually made a sacrifice and was accepted, would have had to have been Jesus. Uh, Joshua, as he's getting ready to, lead, to take over as leader of the people, met the, the angel of the Lord, and everything is always in capitalized in the old, in the old King James, probably was Jesus because he bowed down and worshipped him. Because uh, any time you saw somebody bowing down in front of an angel and it was an angel, they say, stand up for I'm a servant of the Lord and only God accepts worship. So there's many places in the scripture where we believe it was the incarnate Jesus showing up before he was getting his body in the Roman days of Rome. Because the Bible also says that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So God, as far as he was concerned, as soon as they agreed that, that they were going to create man, man was going to fall and Jesus was going to be sacrificed. As soon as Jesus said, yes, I'll be sacrificed, he was the lamb, viewed as the lamb slain, slain from the very beginning. He just took a body. And this is, gets you very, it's very difficult because God's outside of time. So he sees time totally different than we do. He sees time as something he can go backwards, forwards, and encompasses the whole, the whole of. And for him to have a, a body before he got a body is not that big a deal because in his mind it was going to be done, so it was done. And it gets you into a very rare, <laughs> interesting, interesting place. I mean, we operate within the, within the 3D dimensions. You know, we can go forward, backwards. But for us, we operate in the dimension of time only going forward and God's beyond it so he operates in time just as we do in our in our world so and it can be interesting when we get to spiritual what will time mean to us there uh, I've heard many say that there is no time and there is no time as we understand it but if you read Revelation at the new creation the the, the tree of life produces fruit 12 different fruits in in, in its month and we're talking about heaven at that point, so there's some form of time in heaven. It's just not the same as what we exist here. And whatever form of time there is in heaven, God's above, above that. So it's, you know, it's very hard to stretch our mind beyond all of this stuff. And having a body before, because if you think about Nebuchadnezzar saw the image in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says it's like the, the son of Son of God, you know, and so he he recognized that it was God's in the in the fiery furnace with them. Yeah, I always got that that Yeah, they're called Christophanies, if you want, or Christophanies, depending on 
who you who you hear saying it. Well, I guess you could confuse it for an angel because angels would look like it. So, and it very clearly says. But usually when it puts the article, the angel of the Lord in front of it, it's actually referring to God because those, that's the only one that will accept worship in the scriptures. And angels always, all through scriptures, the angels will say, no, I'm a servant, stand up. And we see it especially in Revelation where John bows down and says, no, get up, I'm a, I'm a servant like you. And uh, so, we, but we see it all, all through and say, no, you don't, I'm not, you know, we're not taking worship. So if the angel accepts worship, it has to be God. Uh, or, huh? And in the King James, it always says the angel of the Lord. And as soon as they put the in front of it, it seems if you look at the story, you look at the position, it, it seemed to be a picture of a pre-incarnate Jesus being shown, shown up in, in, in the flesh. And that's why you see Jesus all through the scriptures as well, physically as well as symbolically. All right, where were we? That's okay. Uh, the cherubim stood on the right side. The, cloud, the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. And this, this cloud filling the court in all the previous times that it showed up was always God's presence filling the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, it would either be the word kabod, which means to make heavy, and it's called glory, God's glory. You make God heavy with praise. Or it would be, if you've heard the term Shekinah glory, it's God's direct presence within, within it, and, and it's uh, what that cloud represents is that Shekinah glory, God filling the place and basically making it holy, saying, I'm approving. I'm approving of this place. And then it says in verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of God's glory. I, you know, this is very interesting because you've got a cloud, and clouds usually aren't bright. Unless you're on an airplane and you're above the cloud, then the clouds can be very bright. But this is that presence, God's presence shining out. And he says... Here we see he's taken the fire. They've purified the, the city. They've poured the coals, the hot coals over the city. And then God's spirit comes and fills the temple of the city. We're seeing here the picture of most likely the millennial kingdom being presented. And if you, the millennial kingdom is at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Satan is bound all those who took the mark of the beast and have been, will be cast into hell for, for until judgment. And Jesus will come and rule on this world for a thousand years in a perfect rule. And people will, that have lived through the, the tribulation period will, and did not take the mark of the beast, which will be very few, will live into the millennial kingdom. They'll have children. They'll... they'll Re populate the planet in a thousand years of, of long life and it says in, the, as in that time that anybody living less than a hundred years would be considered a child dying as a child and so it kind of puts us back to what it was before the flood where people are going to live very long lives the animals will be back to where they're supposed to be and many things will be not quite back to Garden of Eden but back to a 
good environment to be in. And so we're seeing the glory of God filling that temple, the millennial kingdom temple. And we've talked a little bit about it back when we talked about sacrifice. They'll have the, there'll be the sacrifice, but the sacrifice that they'll have would be the thanksgiving offerings. Not, they won't need to offer sacrifice for sin and, and all these things because Jesus completed those ones. They'll be offering the sacrifices of thanksgiving. And we won't go back into that. We covered all of that back in Exodus and Leviticus. A little bit in Deuteronomy already. Any questions as we're going on? We're laying, laying, laying a lot of history that we've already covered. Thanksgiving offering is a picnic with God, right? Yeah. What city are they talking about? Jerusalem. Right. The Thanksgiving offering was the one where they placed the offering. God had the inner parts of it that were burnt on the offering. Priests took half of it, and then you got to take half of it, and you had to eat it within, two, within two day, one or two days, depending on why you were giving your Thanksgiving offering. So you basically had a great big party with your family and, and ate it all up because whatever you didn't eat within the period had to be burnt. So when you gave a Thanksgiving offering, you usually attached it to a party <laughs> and celebrated and invited, you know, especially if it was we're offering the cow, you had an awful lot of food to eat in two days. Praising God, you know, that would, and when you gave, gave this offering, you had a very quick time to have to get this, even half of a goat or half of a sheep is gonna be a big, pretty big meal to eat in, in a day or two. All right, verse five. And the sound of the cherub's wings was heard even to the outer court and the voice of the Almighty God as, as the, the voice of the Almighty God when he spoke. And this, this Almighty God literally is uh, El Shaddai. We've sung that song even here, you know, El Shaddai. And that literally means mighty God. And it says the sound of these wings of the cherub when they beat was heard from all the way through the court. And I can't picture how loud that is and how loud those, the beating of those wings must be, but it's gonna be heard in this case for uh, several hundred feet. Uh, if it's talking about, depending on how big this last temple is, the original temple had the dimensions of, uh, I think it was uh, 300, 300 feet. And the temple, Solomon, built a temple that was a much larger than the, than the tabernacle. Uh, Herod built a larger, larger building than the, than the tabernacle. But uh, we do not know what will be put up during the tribulation period because it's going to be put up probably pretty quick. Some kind of prefabrication probably is what I'm expecting. That they've prefabricated it and they probably have it already made and ready to go up as soon as they get permission to to put it there, but they're looking to build, the Jews even to this day are looking to build the third temple because it's part of everything that they're supposed to do when they worship is, in, is with the temple and the sacrifice. They have priests already taught how to do the sacrifices and, and what to do, so they're just waiting. They're waiting because right now there's the controversy on, on the top of the mountain with where they could put it. And there's plenty of room to put it there, and somebody's going to come up with the idea that there's plenty of room up there and put some kind of wall dividing, the, dividing it. And we see a picture of that already in the scriptures that they were to measure, measure the temple and leave out the outer court, which was never part of the original temple, uh, tabernacle. So we're going, to see, we're going to see things moving in that area. Keep our eyes on Jerusalem because everything about the end days is based on Jerusalem. 
God's, God's put his people back in their country and he says the whole world will go against them and that they will stand alone. We're watching our current president try to, try to isolate them. So we could be closer than we ever thought we were. Verse 6, And it came to pass when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take the fire from between the wheels and from between the cherubim. Then he went in and stood beside the wheels, and one of the cherubim stretched forth his hand from between the cherub, cherubims, and the fire that was between the cherubims, and took thereof and put it in the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. So it actually is one of the cherubim handle, handing him the, the coals. Yes, they're one of the classes of angels. The two classes that we know of angels are the cherubim and the seraphim. And cherubim apparently are protectors and warriors because it was a cherubim who guarded the Garden of Eden. And the seraphim see them as in Isaiah 6, and they are around the throne of God worshiping, worshiping God. The, ser the seraphim appear to be the ones that organize the worship around the throne. And the cherubim seem to be the ones that you see doing more of the guarding and, and battle type uh, angels. If, if there's such a thing as guardian angels, they're probably cherubim. <laughs> Once they were kicked out, the cherubim, the cherubim guarded, the, guarded the Garden of Eden and kept man out of the Garden of Eden until it was destroyed during the flood. Well, there's no, no Garden of Eden here on this earth, you know, so it got destroyed during the flood. Might have, got, might have been destroyed before then, but it definitely got destroyed by the flood. Well, there's lots of people that have asked me as a Christian, well, where's the Garden of Eden? I'm going, it was destroyed. The flood destroyed this, the entire face of this earth and changed the entire... Com so he picked up the, the cherubim that took this, uh, gave it to him. Verse 8. And there appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, behold, the four wheels of the cherubim, one wheel by each cherub, and another wheel by the other cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of burl stones. In their appearance, they had four, one, they four had one likeness as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides and they turned not as they went, but, but the place whither the head looked, they fo followed it and they turned not as they went. And their whole body and their backs and their hands and their wings and their wheels were full of eyes around about, even the wheels that they four had. And as for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel. And every one of them had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. And the third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. And the cherubims were lifted up as this is the living creatures that I saw by the river Sabar, and we're going to stop there because this is the description. If you go back to chapter one, this is pretty much the same, pretty much the same description that he gave in chapter one, with one interesting difference. So he says, first off, they had they had man's hands under their wings, and that's again the description that he had. They had wings, and at the end of the wings, somewhere in the wings, they had men's hands, which is why sometimes you'll see angels painted with hands of man and with their wings. And it says they had the wheels and the wheels were under each one of them. And again, this could mean whirlwind, which kind of makes more sense, it's easier to picture. <laughs> Some kind of whirlwind underneath them. Uh, but then it talks about a wheel within a wheel, which means there, I think he's really talking about the chaotic uh, of movement of all this wind. 
yeah, it's hard to draw wind. I mean, I've seen all kinds of, if you, if you get online and you start trying to look for pictures of what these things look like, some people with very imaginative uh, imagery have tried to try to draw pictures. I've tried to picture it in my mind and I can't picture wheels within wheels and, and all of that stuff. It makes no sense to me, but others have drawn chariots underneath these angels and that has places where that seems to fit. Other people have drawn like little tornado cyclones underneath them, whirlwinds underneath them. Uh, some have just put a whole bunch of wheels, like a um, gyroscope in there. That's the nearest thing I can think of as, as far as wheels within wheels. Uh, what exactly he was seeing? I don't have enough imagination, so I kind of just read. This is one of the section reasons this is not one of my favorite books, because I can't, I don't have that imagination on it. Uh, I read something that makes no sense to, literally makes no sense to me, and I, and I read what they said and makes no sense to the commentators either, you know, that I've read. Uh, you've got a gambit of all kinds of different things, what they mean. The, the closest thing that really comes out that most of them will say is all of these wheels and eyes and everything represent the all-seeingness of God, and I'm, I'm going to be happy with that. Happy with that. They go, they go the direction. You know, they all four stay together, but they all go in, 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 in quickly. And then they have the eyes that cover everything. You know, so I, I'm going to say that I agree with the commentators that you know say that this represents the, the omnipresence of God and the, uh, and the all-knowingness of God. So it's, um, uh, but it's much more than I know. There's more than that to it. I just don't, I don't have an answer for it because I, I see too much confusion amongst, the experts. And I can't take a hard stance. If I can't see something and understand it, I'm not going to take a hard stance on it. And, but uh, he says that, you know, in verse 14, we get to where he says, they had four faces. The first was the face of a cherub. The second, the face of a man. And the third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. This is the place where there's a difference in his description from chapter 1. In chapter 1, he said that they had the appearance of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. And here he says it has the face of a, of a cherub. Why the difference? I have no idea. And could it be, and there are those who will tell you that it's the highest uh, creation in each of these different classifications, Man, the highest of, of, the, of this world, the cherub would be the highest within the spiritual realm outside of God. Uh, the lion, the king of the beast, and, and everywhere you look, and the eagle, the king of the, king of the birds. Possible. I don't know what it is, why, it was, why he changed from ox to cherub in this, I don't know. Uh, in the first one, I really believe that it had to do with the tribes of, Is of Israel because the, as the tribes encamped around the, the tabernacle, you had a tribe who was in charge of the three tribes in there, and they matched up to their banners. Uh, but why we have this one, I don't know. And, but it is an interesting change. And I, and I couldn't find anybody who actually commented on the change, which really bothered me because I checked three or four of the guys that I normally that I normally trust and would check and none of them mentioned the fact that this changed from chapter one so 
And uh, the only thing I can come up with in my mind is that it's representing the, the highest of each of the classifications, the spiritual world and the physical world. If anybody else has any other great ideas, I'll, I'll entertain any, any wonderful idea out there. And he says the cherubs were lifted up or exalted. And then he goes on with this very interesting, this is the living creature that I saw by the river Sebar, going back to chapter 1. And again, part of this, I think, is because he's trying to describe something he doesn't, that he can't even comprehend, is what I'm thinking. And how easy is it when you don't really understand something to describe it? Uh, I've had to give testimony from being robbed on what somebody looks like, and sometimes that's hard to do because of all the emotions that are flowing in the middle of that, because uh, I've been robbed by gunpoint on, on four occasions, and it's hard to give a description sometimes of who you're looking at, because basically the only thing I remember on two occasions was a gun. Uh, one, I was looking down the barrel of the gun, and that's all I remember because the guy was nervous. I couldn't have told you what that guy looked like at all because all I saw was a shaking gun. And I'm trying to calm him down. And, you know, calm down, I'll just give you, <laughs> give you what you want. So I couldn't have described him for anything because I was more uh, paying attention to the gun. But I think when, uh, when we get into places at times, it's hard sometimes to describe what we see. And this is a picture that I, I don't know that I, I probably wouldn't even have done as good as, as Ezekiel did. And Ezekiel's a hard person to try to understand on this. And yet, I don't think I could have given even as good a description as he gave. Yes. Trying to describe something that is totally out of his perception in terms of somebody that's living 600 years before Jesus was born. You know, it's the same thing when we read Revelation and we try to figure out what John is describing, and we have some kind of context because we know he's describing generally our world. And he's trying to describe our world in his words. And for John, it's kind of amazing. Can you imagine what John was trying to see when he just looked at a city? Our cities with skyscrapers that are bigger than anything he could even comprehend. He probably didn't even realize that they were buildings because of how big they were. So if he saw the buildings and did realize that they were man-made and, and living things, he would have probably described them as towers. But you know, he saw cars and vehicles. How do you describe a car or a vehicle to somebody who's never never seen it. The fastest thing he knows of is a chariot and it can only go 15, 20 miles an hour, what, you know, maybe 30. Uh, and he's trying to describe vehicles that are moving and big and did a very good job. And again, people with great imaginations will see what he's, you know, try to see something of, re you know, our day and age in it. But this is the same thing that uh, Ezekiel's doing. No, this I don't, this one really, the sounds and the effects are something of a helicopter nature, but it, it's not because it's spiritual and I can't. This is just, I think God is showing it, trying to show him the future. He's showing it through all of his glory and everything and, and he's seeing it from a very interesting perspective. Somebody somewhere might have an answer to this, but I'm not imaginative enough to, <laughs> to come up with it. I've told people, even when it comes to thinking about heaven, I read the scriptures and the pictures of heaven and then I'm going, okay, it's beautiful. And I move on to the next next thing. I, I am a very concrete, this is <laughs> factual person, so when I get these artistic things, it, I leave it to those who like doing plays and, 
and movies and scripts and, and painting, let them try to figure out what, what those words mean. Verse 17, and they stood there and they stood and they were lifted up. These lifted themselves up and the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood above the cherubim. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord, Lord's house, and the glory of the Lord of God of Israel was over them. This is the living creatures I saw in, uh, under the Lord of, under God of Israel by the river Sebar, and I knew that they were cherubim. So, and everyone had four faces apiece, and every one of them four wings, and the likeness of the hands of man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same faces as I saw by the River Sebar, their appearances and their and them and themselves, they were everyone went straight forward. So here he's saying that this takes us back to they they lifted up. <laughs> they came, you saw them by the river, and then they left. And so this is partially, I believe, this is God showing His glory to to Ezekiel, saying this is how how great things are. And I don't know if anybody has really come to this place when you're worshiping or you're serving God and all of a sudden God's presence just falls on you in such a way that you really can't explain it. There's times when I've had such a presence with God and I know it doesn't last long because it seems like it's long when I'm in the middle of it because it's almost like you enter in that timeless realm because God's come on you in such a way that you're it, time just seems to stand still, but then you come out of it and you realize that practically no time has gone by. You're still singing the same songs being still sung, the same, same messages going on. But the times when you come into God's presence is just can be overwhelming. And I think this is what he's seeing here. What he's seeing is God's presence and just an overwhelming appearance of God showing this is how glorious I am and how powerful I am and how strong I am. And this is taking him outside of the realm that he's in. Because as we saw in there, during this period of time, he's, gone, he's been taken in the spirit all over the place to see visions and see the evilness of the, of the people that he's in and then to see the glory of God in there. And we see the glory. And it says the glory was lifted up off the temple. When the glory came down upon the tabernacle, even Moses did not go into the tabernacle to see God. It was just that intense. And I've been there where I've, the glory of God has just come across so intensely. And it doesn't take, it's not a very long thing, but it is very impressive when it happens. And I hope if you haven't had it, that it will happen to you. You're, we're not to live on experience, but it is really wonderful when that presence of God comes in a very strong way and just overwhelms us and we know that we're part of something that is so much more than what we can perceive in our in our senses and God it really helps us to understand God is greater than anything we can possibly think of he is so much more and this is why I say no matter how big you think God is he's bigger Keep making him bigger, and he's bigger than whatever, you, whatever we can conceive of in our human brain, he's bigger than. However powerful we can conceive of him being, he's more powerful. 
you know, no matter how knowing, all-knowing we can think of him being, he's more. God is always more than anything that our human capacity can imagine because he's greater. And, he, and the thing is, he will always be greater. For all of eternity, he's going to be greater. And that's after he's expanded our thinking with our spiritual bodies. He still will be greater because he is God. And he's always going to be God. He will always be more, know more than we do and have greater power than whatever he gives us to have during that period with our spiritual bodies. He is always going to be greater because that's who he is. This is who he is. And I think partially what we've been seeing in Ezekiel here is God showing him, this is how great I am. This is how powerful I am. And he's getting just a picture of it. And he's being seen that God is going to be praised, God's glory. And this is what God, when we worship God, we're glory, we're putting glory on God. True worship is just making God really heavy with praise. And just keep praising him. Saying, God, you are good, you are great, you are wonderful. You know, giving back his names to him as we worship him and adore him. And just lift him up and really start to understand that God is so much more than we ever think about him being. And especially in our day, I mean, it was, in our day especially, we have trying to make God pretty small in most cases and you know because he's our buddy he's our friend you know we're we're in a relationship with him and that is a very true statement that we are in a different relationship than anybody else in in the Old Testament ever had with him we have this personal relationship with him but we've got to also remember that he is righteous he is holy he is so much above us that we need to be careful sometimes how we look at him and say God we need to be looking at you. Yes, you give us grace, you give us mercy, but you are holy, you are righteous. And lift him up in the proper position. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, uh, in the year that Uriah uh, died, he saw God high and lifted up. And the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And his train filled the temple. You know, he's, Isaiah saw a picture of God. He'd been a prophet for a long time before that. But all of a sudden, he saw God. And it changed everything about him. And if you remember the story, he goes, God says, who will I send? You know, and he says, send me. And he goes, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he was touched by the fire from the altar. <laughs> fire from the altar is always that purification. And this is something that's very interesting. I was thinking about this just the other day. Huh? Isaiah 6. Fire is destructive, but by the same token, it is purifies. Even in the forest fires, they, they, it strips out the, the dead wood and things grow better after the fire. Uh, if you want to purify any kind of metal, you put it under, you put it under intense heat and liquefy it, and it, it boils out the impurities. And God uses the same image with us as he puts us in fire to purify us. Trials and hardships and, and everything. And it's not to hurt us. It, it is in one sense to hurt us by getting rid of the, the bad that, doesn't want to, that he doesn't want there. But the ultimate is it's for good because it purifies and cleanses. 
And God uses fire for just that purpose. And this is why we need to really always understand God is good and he wants the best for us. And when he puts us through hard times and trials and tribulations, it's not because he's up there laughing at us because we're going through pain. It's because he says, I want all the flesh, I want all the garbage and the sin taken out of your life and I want to purify you. And we see this as we walk with God more and more and we look back over our life, we should see that purification in our life. We learn to love more. We learn to be more forgiving. We learn to be kinder to people because God has put us through trials to work out the, the dross, the sin, the, the bad in us. And we come out of the trials in one of two ways. We, are, we either come out of the trials angry with God and, and get into sin until he gets, back, gets, gets us back under control or we grow through the trial and we say, God, thank you. Thank you for the trial. It tells us in the scriptures, in everything, give thanks. The only way we can give thanks for everything is if we really truly understand that everything God's doing to us is for good. That's against everything. Huh? That's against everything we've ever been taught. But see, again, if we understand that God is good and he's doing it for our good, then we can give thanks. We're not giving thanks for the pain. We're giving thanks for what the pain will bring us into. As he crucifies our flesh, he takes out the sin nature and he, and he does it through hardships and says, are you going to support me? It brings back new birth. It brings back uh, everything. But it is God saying, are you going to lean on me? And the more we lean on him and the more we're thankful for it, the less painful it is in the first place. Uh, I don't know if anybody has ever dealt it, but one of the things when I worked in restaurants, I kept my knives very sharp. We sharpened them once a month to keep them, keep them sharp. Oh, well, in the restaurants, in the kitchens and everything. Oh, if, if you cut yourself with a non-sharp knife, it hurts really bad as it tears everything away. Now, you cut yourself with a sharp knife, you don't even know you've cut yourself at first. And then you, and it, but it's easy, it also heals easier because it's a clean cut and everything, everything comes back together. God does the same thing with us. He puts us through things and he says, if we, face, if we are looking at God, everything that he does with us happens so quick and clean and we just look and we come through there and go, oh, you just, you just took something out. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been through it many times where I look back over my life and I say, God, where's, where's all this storm and trash come from? I don't remember going through it because my focus was on him. And sometimes I've gone through some very hard storms then gone back and looking going, wow, a lot's happened over the last, last month. And I didn't realize it when I was going through it. Other times when my mind is focused on, not focused on God, little things are knocking me around and, and, and bouncing me off the walls and everything. And, and I go back, I look at him going, how can this happen? Well, because I am not focused correctly on God. I'm not hiding in God. God has no problem weathering any storm that comes his way. If we're hiding in him and he's our strong tower and we're hiding in him, it doesn't matter what storms come in our life and they pound on him and it doesn't affect him. And we don't even know it. If you've ever been in a storm and you've been in a nice secure building, 
when I lived in Guam, we lived in a, we lived in uh, cinder block houses. When the typhoons came through, it didn't even rattle the rattle the houses. Now, if, if the people who lived on the island outside the base, now they oftentimes wouldn't have a house left after the typhoons went through because of the difference in construction. God says hide in him. And the storms will beat on him and there's not a problem when we're, when we're hiding in him. But if you're outside of the, of the building, any little storm is a pain in the neck, isn't it? It's, it's drizzling and you're getting hit by all the rain and, and it's cold or hot depending on which which direction you're going and you're being affected by everything, every little problem when you're not hiding in God. And God's saying, I want you to hide in me. Take my yoke. It's, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, cast all your cares on me for, I, for he cares for you, know, on him for he cares for you. All these verses that say, just give him all of our problems. If we give God all of our problems and, we're, and we hide in him and we're, we're secure in him, we can walk through the hardest things and would not have a problem. If we're trying to deal with them in our own flesh and our own strength, we're going we're gonna to get beat up pretty good. And this is something if you read any of the, any of the biographies of, of somebody, you see people go through some pretty amazing things when their eyes are focused on God. Um, and he talks a lot about the, uh, the hiding place, you know, when they're, when they're in, the, in the concentration camp and, and they're praying and trying to have fun, uh, talk about things. And, and Corey Ten Boom's sister says, we're going to praise, praise God for all the lice and the fleas in this dorm. And Corey goes, no, we can't do that. And she goes, and, and her sister goes, you know, but you realize that the guards won't even come in here. We, we wouldn't be able to have the Bible studies if it wasn't for these lice and these fleas. You know, who, who's looking at it from God's perspective and who's looking at it from the world's perspective? You know, we need to be careful because if we're looking at it from the world's perspective, everything is going to be hard and we're, we usually be grumpy about everything that happens to us because we just can't see how anything good can be, on, be from it. If we're looking at it from God's perspective, sometimes he'll show us what the good is. Sometimes we just have to trust him that it's good, but we're still at peace. And this is the thing. When we're hiding in God, we know that all things work together for good. We know that God is good. We know that he's carrying our weight, and we know that he's got a plan for us. We know that he's sovereign. It becomes very easy to say, God, don't understand it, but thank you. Something good is going to come out. And I, and I don't believe there's any problem with you saying, God, I don't understand what's good, but I'm going to trust you. And that is what he's looking for. Are we willing to trust his word in every situation? Are we willing to stand with what he wants us to do in every situation? And this can be difficult. During hard times, you saw the disciples getting beat for doing what God said. You know, he said to share the gospel and they would get beat. Various opportunities, the, the prophets, most of them, you know, we think of the prophets having a really easy life, but most of them were thrown into jail and beat and, and died and, and accused of being false prophets and all these things. That, you know, they were not well respected. You have Elijah and Elisha both trying to be arrested. Every time they got turned around, they're trying to arrest them. And sometimes God delivered them. But we see all these things out there. God has things that we're going to look at and say, God, I don't understand how this can be good. 
God, I don't understand why you're going to allow these bad things to happen to us. And yet God says, I've got a plan. I have a plan because then their lives stand out as a shining example of God's provision. And uh, if you read, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I really recommend that everybody reads Fox's Book of Martyrs sometimes. It's a hard book to read. It's, it's not nice in many pictures of it because everybody dies. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called martyrs. And many of them die very gruesome deaths. But the fact that they get lifted up and we see that they were shining lights of God's glory. And one of my favorite stories on Fox's Book of Martyrs is a father and son that are getting ready to be burned at the cross. And the father's faith is wavering. He's just not sure. And the son says, God, God, will, God will take care of us. And he goes, whoever, whoever goes first, when they see God's kingdom, can raise their hands in the fire and start praising God. Well, the son got to go first. He had the stronger faith at that point. And his father's watching his son burn, and all of a sudden his son raises up his hands and starts praising God. And the father gets the strength to be able to go and give his life. And these stories are still out there being, being spoken of, to be an example of God's miraculous deliverance. And the good thing about it is whatever God asks you to go through, he's going to give you the strength and the grace to go through it. And I can't imagine going through what these guys did, but if, if God put me in a place where it does, I would expect him to give me the strength and the grace to be able to endure the hardships that he's going to ask to happen. And unfortunately, I think many of these things are going to happen here in the near future. We're going to see persecution come in this country upon Christians. It's happening in the rest of the world. Millions of Christians die every year. And I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But millions of Christians are dying in this world because they're Christians. We need to keep aware of that. We have been very blessed in America not to have to go through all that persecution for all these years. But I think the time is coming close to an end where we're going to start having to say, I'm a Christian and cost us something. As we get more and more evil in this world, we're going to have more and more persecution of righteousness. Because righteousness is a light against the evil. And so they're going to want to get rid of the light that presses against the evil. And the church has been a restraining, as bad as things are getting, imagine how bad it would be if the church wasn't there restraining the evil that was going on because we fight against, the, the true church fights against all these bad things that try to get legalized. We're fighting a losing battle, but imagine how bad it would be if the church wasn't there to stop or at least slow down all these bad things that are happening. Well, the church is going to be raptured out at some point, but in the process before that, I think we're going to face great persecution where people are going to really get upset about the church trying to slow down where they want to go. And if you talk to a lot of people out there, if you start talking to the, to the lost world who don't really desire God at all, they have this same idea that, you know, it's, we, we Christians are a real bane, bane to their existence because we tell them what they're doing is wrong. We tell them that homosexuality is wrong, that adultery is wrong, fornication is wrong, you know, and all these things are wrong and they're going, well, we want to do them and so they don't like what we're doing and there will be a backlash as things continue to get worse. So we need to pray for that. We need to pray for our world and our country. We need to pray for revival. There's still possibility for a revival. I'm not putting a great hope in that 
a worldwide revival again or a great revival like we've had in the past. But we can have revival. I think we're going to have pockets of revival more than national revival like we've had three times already. I'm going to pray. I want to pray. I'd love to see a national revival. I'd like to see our country come back to God one more time. It's only done it three times in our history, but it's, you know, it's possible to have it happen again. But we need to pray. We need to witness. And at the very least, we'll see revival in pockets all across, the, all across this world where churches stand up and deliver the message. And, and when persecution happens, God's spirit moves in persecution. It's really amazing that the more the, more the church gets persecuted, the more the people get saved. And it doesn't make any sense. It's counter, counterintuitive, but people see that you have something that you're willing to die for and you're not being bitter toward, and it draws them to something that's real. And we in this country have a Christianity for a large percent of the people who claim to be Christians that doesn't seem to be real when they, in their day-to-day living. It doesn't impact how they react to people and how they act in business and how they, how they work and how they have their families. And that is an impact that people notice. When people claim to be a Christian but don't, and live just like them, the term Christian, Christianity or being a Christian loses its power. But then they get to meet some real Christians who behave right at work and, and, and influence, and everything is an influence in every part of their life. And they go, oh, okay, this is different. I want to pay attention to it. And they're not seeing enough of it. And we as a church need to stand up and present a Christianity that is real, that impacts every part of our life. That when we go to work, we work as if we're working to God, not just to the person and trying to please the person, but we work as if we're, as we're working to God. And I've gotten in trouble in businesses because I work so hard, and I've had people tell me, you, got, you can't work so hard, and I'm going, sorry, this is the only way I know how to work because God tells me, tells me to, to be a good worker. Uh, and I've shared with you, I worked with this one company where one of the only companies I had breaks, but I would go on break, and people were on break when I started, and I would go back to break. They were still on break. Uh, I went to lunch and they were already they were already at lunch and I'd come back for lunch and they weren't back from lunch. You know this is this is the way the world operates. As long as they can get away with it, they will do as little as they possibly can. But we as Christians need to be able to say, "I'm going. I'm working as if I'm working to God. I'm going to follow the rules, whether I like them or not. Doesn't matter. I'm going to work hard and work as unto God. Our marriages should be good marriages that are going to stay together and hold together." We shouldn't be committing fornication and adultery as Christians. We should be honest. Our words should be bound, should be our, our bond as it used to be because of this is God's standard and we need to apply his standards to all that we do. And if we start applying God's standards, we're going to stand out, <laughs> you know, bright lights, a sore thumb, however you want to, <laughs> however you want to make it. And people are going to basically get upset with us because they're going to see something that is totally different. <laughs> but they're also going to be drawn to the integrity of God because it's so different from the rest of the world. Let's close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go with us. And Lord, in every aspect of our life, we ask that you, we are so hidden in you that you shine forth in all aspects of our life, that we are a witness and an example of all that you would have us to be. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.